Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. You've stumbled upon the smartest show in the history of anything that's gone into your ears. My name's Dan. This is the place where we tour around the universe. We look at all those science secrets that are lurking nearby. This week, we'll hear about one of the most famous historical sites in the world, Stonehenge, and why experts have been looking at what the people who built it might have eaten. We looked at 19 coprolites, so 19 bits of preserved poo, and a quarter of them contain the eggs of intestinal parasitic worms. And we did some special tests on those bits of poo to work out where they came from. One of the ways we help to digest food is... Also, we'll head up to Deep Space High. You know it's the smartest school in the solar system. And we'll have a look at things that have crashed into the Earth. 50,000 years ago, a giant fireball would have streaked across the North American sky. It was travelling at 26,000 miles an hour and hit the Earth with the power of 2,500 tonnes of high explosives. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on Pangaea, the supercontinent, and why you sweat. It's coming up in a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off this week with your science in the news. The world's biggest plant has been found off the coast of Australia. It's roughly three times the size of Manhattan in New York City, and it's seagrass. It's a bed of seagrass underwater. Now, it's one large plant. That's what's amazing. Not loads of different ones. One large plant. It's the size of 22,000 football fields. It's 77 square miles. And it's thought to have spread from a single seed four and a half thousand years ago. Also, a prehistoric food fight might have spelled the end for the Megalodon. It's the largest shark that ever lived. Over three million years ago, it was a menace to the sea. And experts think that they used to eat whales. The problem is they'd eaten most of the whales. There wasn't a lot of food left for them. And other creatures wanted that food too. And a shame for the Megalodon, they lost that battle and now they're extinct. And finally, robots are being used in a UK hospital because there's a huge waiting list and a patient backlog. So the robots are taking on some work. They're helping out with the surgery, all surgeries to do with bladders and the heart. Now, uh, they're very small, these robots, because they're so small, they're very precise, they're clean, there's very little risk involved, but still, they are being watched by experts all the time. It's time to catch up with Professor Hallux now. We've not got many episodes left of this series, his Map of Medicine series. Uh, he and his amazing sidekick and mate, Nurse Nanobot, they have been teaching us for the last few weeks what happens inside your body, why you sometimes feel ill, and then who makes you better again and what medicines they're using. This week, it's all about what goes on in the A&E department, the accident and emergency department in the hospital. And we're having a look at Professor Halex's trusty map of medicine again. Professor Halex's map of medicine. That should do it. Just putting the finishing touches to a fantastic new cupboard for my collection of spores and fungi. Just need to tighten this screw a bit more. Ow. I've got a splinter in my eye circuit and my eyes popped out. Professor, 
help! It's bouncing around on its wire and I'm, I'm getting dizzy. Oh, heck, nurse. You're starting to smoke. Hang on. Let me get to your panel control and I'll switch your eyes off for a moment whilst we fix them. Phew, that's better. I mean, obviously I can't see, but at least I'm not in danger of setting off the smoke alarm anymore. Let's get you sat down over here. There we go. Luckily for you, being a robot means an accident like that doesn't hurt and won't need a trip to the accident and emergency department of the hospital, like it might if you were human. Which reminds me, the A&E is a very interesting place on my map of medicine. We should take a look. Can you give us the lowdown on accidents, nurse, while I load it up? Why not? I won't be getting that cupboard up today. <laughs> Clinical crunch. Whoops. Everyone has accidents, cuts and bumps and trips and falls, even super clever robot nurses. Luckily, most of them aren't very serious and don't need a doctor. But if you have a serious accident, you may need emergency medical help, and that means getting to an accident and emergency department of a hospital. So, what makes something a serious accident? It's when someone's life is in danger. This could be a cut that won't stop bleeding, or if someone has fainted, or is in a confused state, or is having fits that are not stopping. Other reasons for going to A&E may be severe chest pains. This can mean a problem with your heart, or if you are struggling to breathe. Yes, but some very silly people go to A&E for coughs and colds. Some even take their poorly pets. Get this straight. It is for emergencies and for people, not pussycats. Sorry, Fluffy. So let's load up the map of medicine and find out more. Opening the map of medicine. So you've had a serious accident. Let's say you've got a nasty cut and it won't stop bleeding. Off to A&E you go. Now there's another thing to remember. You don't need to get an ambulance if you're going to A&E. Not even if you want one really badly. If your parents have a car, they might be able to drive you there or you could go in a taxi or on a bus. Probably best not to ride your bike though, especially if you're dripping blood everywhere. Yuck! Might make the pedals slippery. When you arrive, you give the staff on reception your details and then take a seat in the waiting area to wait to be seen. The unusual thing about A&E is that it isn't first come, first served. Someone who arrived after you might get seen first. Oi, 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 what about me then? What about me? Calm down. This isn't queue jumping though, because of a clever system called triage that helps the hospital decide how long you wait. Triage is nothing to do with trees. It's a way for the hospital to get an idea of how badly you are hurt so they can decide who gets treated first. A nurse called a triage nurse will assess you by examining you and asking some questions. It's a system that was invented on the battlefield nearly a hundred years ago in World War I. At the height of battle, there were thousands of injured people and medical staff had to make quick decisions about who to treat first. Medics would walk through the wounded men, looking at their injuries and sorting them into groups. Some people were so badly injured that they were likely to die whatever happened. So, sadly, they wouldn't have been treated first. In fact, they may not have been treated at all. Some people would have been injured, but not that badly. Whilst they certainly needed treatment, they were able to wait for others to go first. So that meant those who got treated first 
were those who urgently needed treatment and who stood a good chance of living if they got it. Today's A&E department shouldn't be like a battlefield, but the same system is used today. Who needs the help the most? That person will get to see the doctors first. So, if you've got an injury like a broken fingernail or an upset tummy, you might find it quicker to go to the pharmacy or your doctor, because you'll be waiting a long time to be seen. Let's have a quick disgusting detail, nurse. There's just time before we go. Disgusting detail. In wars hundreds of years ago, when soldiers had their arms and legs amputated, the stumps were usually covered in burning oil. This was thought to help them heal. But if you've been burnt, you'll know it hurts. Ambrose Paré was a 16th century French surgeon. He worked in the battlefield where he amputated the limbs of wounded soldiers. And when he ran out of oil, he tried a mixture of rouse oil, turpentine and egg white. And miraculously, he found that it actually helped the wounds heal and probably hurt a lot less. Probably smelt a lot better too. Time for us to go, but before you join us again, why not explore Map of Medicine for yourself? Hollux's Map of Medicine is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Let's get to your questions then. If you've got anything sciencey, anything at all, that you would like answered on the Fun Kids Science Weekly, it's so easy. Just leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. That's what Gabrielle Hines has done. Uh, she says, I hope you. And the Fun Kids team enjoyed the Platinum Jubilee Bank holiday. I very much did, Gabrielle. Thank you so much. And you've sent a question in. Well done. Why did Pangaea separate? Have you heard of Pangaea before? It was a supercontinent. Pretty much all the countries and the continents that we have today were all at one time one. They were merged into this big landmass. It was a supercontinent about 335 million years ago. It was slap bang in the middle of the Earth. And then about 200 million years ago, it started to break apart. Now, that movement eventually has led to all the different islands and continents that we have today. It's taken 200 million years to get here. Uh, And now experts think that Pangaea started to break apart and move for the same reasons that we have earthquakes now. The world is made of tectonic plates. They are huge slabs of earth and they fit together a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Now, beneath that, there are loads of gases, gases, very hot gases that are bubbling away. They bubble away and they move. And this makes the plates move. Now, when they slide together today, you get mountain ranges and you get earthquakes. Experts think that these were all moving and slowly, 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 that's what made Pangaea start to separate because they would move and then an ocean would burst through the gap and would make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you've got what we have today, Gabrielle. Thanks for the question. Uh, Lastly, this is from Sophie who wants to know what is sweat made of? Well, sweat is 99% water. The other 1% is salts and fats and and waste that your body doesn't need. Now, you sweat to cool down. When you're really hot, you make this water, this fluid, and it draws heat out of your body. 
it evaporates. Have you heard of that before? It means when water gets hot, it turns into a gas. And that really helps your body because it draws heat away from your vital organs like your lungs and your heart, uh, pulls it away from that and it sends it off into the air, cools you down. Sophie, thank you for the question. If there's something you would like answered on the Science Weekly next week, you've got to leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're taking a look at one of the most mystical, uh, mysterious places in the world that has stumped scientists for centuries. And there's a brand new discovery about the food that they might have eaten. Let's chat to someone who's worked on this project, Piers Mitchell. Thank you for being there, Piers. No problem. Nice to talk to you. Now, this is all about Stonehenge. Just to kick us off, can you take us through what we know about Stonehenge? Because some, some people seem to know nothing and some people seem to know a lot. Well, Stonehenge is an amazing monument that's down in Wiltshire. So that's in southwest Britain. It was built about 2,500 BC. So that's in the late Stone Age, in the Neolithic So this was a time before people had writing. So the only way we can really find out about it is by doing archaeology and digging things up down there. And the famous bit of Stonehenge that everybody knows is the standing stone rings with uh, uh, that are aligned with the sun in the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year. So people think that was probably built as some kind of clock. Um, a way of having spiritual or religious ceremonies that align with the with the sun, but right round Stonehenge, there's a huge area of other places that they obviously thought were really important for religious ceremonies. So we've got ceremonial walkways, we've got lots of wooden hinges. So the woods rotted away, but they would put large wooden tree trunks in rings as well, just like stone hinges. And then we have a uh, access to it from a river. And then we have a village nearby where it looks like the people that built Stonehenge actually lived while they put it all together. Now, this is a place, Durrington Walls, and I know that's been the focus of a good chunk of your study. And and you've been looking at what they might have eaten. Just, Just tell us why you started researching this there. Well, Durrington Walls is only a couple of miles away from Stonehenge itself. It was only used for between 10 and 50 years. So bearing in mind this was four and a half thousand years ago, that was just a tiny snippet of time. And it matches up very nicely with when the upright bits of Stonehenge were being made. So it looks like people were living there while they put the stones together. Now, at Durrington Walls, we've got various bits that showed what people were like and what they were doing. So we've the best bits, from my point of view, are the rubbish dumps because the rubbish dumps contain beautiful uh, layers of stuff that they were throwing away, but it tells us what they were doing. So we got bits of broken pottery where the contents of those pots have soaked into the pottery so you can look at the proteins and other things inside to tell you what were inside those pots. You can look at the chopped up and burnt bits of animal bone that show us what meats they were eating, and they ate a lot of pork and a lot of cattle, a lot of beef. And I was looking at the bits of feces called coprolite, so preserved bits of poo that were put on the rubbish dump because they hadn't invented toilets back then. And 
when they're preserved, you can look inside those and look for key things. And I was particularly looking for parasite eggs. So if you uh, don't have flushing toilets and wash your hand with soap and water and things, it's quite common even now around the world to get intestinal worms. And I was looking for those in these Neolithic people that were living four and a half thousand years ago. Wow. And what did you find? How many of these intestinal worms were lurking around there? Well, we looked at 19 coprolites, so 19 bits of preserved poo, and a quarter of them contain the eggs of intestinal parasitic worms. And we did some special tests on those bits of poo to work out where they came from. One of the ways we help to digest food is by our livers producing a chemical called bile. And different animals make slightly different kinds of bile. So if you look at that, you can work out what animal or human the poo came from. And what we found was these coprolites, some of them were from humans and some of them were from dogs. And when we looked at the insides of these coprolites using a microscope, we could find that one dog was infected with fish tapeworm. So that's a kind of parasite that um, humans or dogs can get from eating raw or undercooked fish. And then the worm starts growing inside you, releases its eggs, and then you can see those eggs in the poop. And we found four of the coprolites contained the eggs of a different kind of parasite called capillariids. And they don't infect humans and they don't infect dogs. But what they are really good at infecting is other animals that we might eat, like cows. And so if we know from looking at the rubbish dumps that we've got chopped up bits of pig and cow bones, then we know they must have been eating those. And so it looks very much like those parasites that we got in the parasite eggs came from the cows. And what's great about them is that in the cows, they normally sit in the liver. And up till now, people thought that they were eating the steak, the meat off the bones, but didn't really know what else they were eating. But now we know that the humans and the dogs were uh, consuming liver because that's how these parasite eggs got inside. So we can actually see that they were eating the internal organs of these animals as well as the meat. So these humans who were around you know, 4,000 years ago who were building Stonehenge, how fit and healthy would they have been if they were eating food and, and a quarter of the time had parasites from that food then make their way into their system? Well, um, what's interesting about people there, that they didn't live there all year. They seem to have come in the winter and gone away in the summer. So they would have farmed their own crops and look after their own cattle and stuff at home. And then they'd have come right across southern Britain and migrated to Stonehenge for the winter to build it and also have their ceremonies there. And we know that because the pig bones that we found there are all nine months old. And pigs are born in, uh, in the spring, in about March. And so if they're all killed at nine months old, then we know they must have all been killed in December and January. So people were coming to Stonehenge to have feasts here. Um, and when you look at the actual health, then, yeah, if you're going to be infected by parasites that take your food, such as the fish tapeworm, then it might make you prone to malnutrition, not having enough nutrients and energy. But if you just find the eggs of the cow parasites inside your poo, then they don't make you sick. They make cows sick, but not you. So those people and those dogs who were eating the cow liver didn't get sick from those at all. It's just a sign that we can use to help us understand what they were eating when they had their feasts, when they went for their celebrations in the winter at Stonehenge. Do we know if they cooked the food? 
Well, they certainly did cook the food because the bones show charring on them. Whether they were roasted or potentially stewed in those clay pots, hard to tell. But if you roast an animal, you tend to cook the outside and you don't cook the inside very well. So that might be why we're getting beautifully preserved parasite eggs from the inner organs like the liver ending up in the uh, feces because maybe the outside of those animals was getting cooked nicely, but the inside wasn't. Amazing. Uh, so fascinating just to hear how much we can figure out about people who lived, you know, 4,000 years ago. Piers Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to talk to you. Let's get to this week's Dangerous Dan, where we talk about the most mean and cruel things in the universe. This week, it's all about one of the smallest creatures that we know who have a very unique way of defending themselves. Now, the carpenter ant is one of the most common types of ant around. Now, one species of them is Colobopsis saundersi, and it's found mainly in Malaysia and Brunei, quite hot climates in Asia. Now, this ant is known for building long, elaborate homes and tunnels underground. They've got a thick jaw that can open to its whole body, and down the sides of its body uh, are lined with glands and sacs of poison. Now, that's all fine. It goes about its business. But when it gets into a fight things start to happen. You see, that poison, it's not really to use on an attacker, not properly. Instead, it's to use on itself. When things start to go wrong, this ant scrunches its belly inwards, kind of hunches over, and then uses its long, thick jaws to pierce the poison sacs, and then it explodes. Its last line of defense in a fight is to blow itself up. It's a strange thing to do. To give yourself like that to a predator. Now, why does it do that? Well, experts think it's because when the attacker then tries to feast on the now dead ant, it will become very ill by the toxic poison that the ant has used to blow itself up with this thick, gloopy yellow goo. And because it gets so ill, it won't look to attack that species again. So one ant is making the ultimate sacrifice for all its mates, for the army of ants and its species, and that's why it does it. And that is why the Colobopsis saundersi, this very strange species of the carpenter ant, is going straight on our dangerous Dan list. It's time now to head to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High. We've been travelling up there for the last few weeks on the Science Weekly, getting a lesson from our friend Professor Pulsar. Now this week, it's all about crashes and craters, because you think about it, the moon is covered in craters, isn't it? When you look at it in the night sky, you can see the holes, they make the man in the moon. But how comes Earth isn't? Well, maybe it is. Let's find out with Professor Pulsar. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Jump into your wormhole and travel to Deep Space High, the school in space. But hurry, because lessons are about to begin. It's weird, isn't it? Looking at the moon with my telescope. It's totally covered in craters. In fact, they're so massive, we can even see them without a telescope. So, Professor, why isn't the Earth covered in craters? You think the Earth doesn't have any craters? Right, come on.
that for a crater? Wow, that's massive. It's the Barringer Meteor Crater here in the Arizona desert. 50,000 years ago, a giant fireball would have streaked across the North American sky. It was traveling at 26,000 miles an hour and hit the Earth with the power of 2,500 tons of high explosives. It left this crater, which is nearly a kilometre wide and 750 feet deep. And it isn't the only crater one can find on Earth. Our planet has been around for over four and a half billion years and will have been battered with millions of asteroids and meteorites since then. But where are all the craters? Think about it. The moon's pretty much dead as a doornail, but Earth's a living, breathing planet. Remember them tectonic plates we looked at? The surface of the Earth is constantly changing and reshaping. We've got oceans and earthquakes on the surface and volcanoes throwing out lava and all under the floor of the atmosphere. Craters have simply just got covered up, that's all. We can see craters on other planets too, can't we? Absolutely, and craters can tell us a lot about the planets and moon, especially their age. Remember how the craters are created? Uh, duh. Asteroids and meteorites from space, just like the one in Arizona. You've got it. The more craters a planet or moon has, the older it's likely to be. Kind of like scars. That's right. Scientists think that there were many more impacts in the past when the solar system was younger, because there was so much more material flying around. It's one way we can tell that all the planets in our solar system are roughly the same age. Sometimes we can get clues about what a planet is made of by looking at the patterns around the crater too. Like, if you drop a ball in a bucket of water... It makes a big splash. That's right. Different minerals will get thrown out in different ways. If the splashy bits look like lava, then we'll know that a planet had a hot core at the time of the impact. Hey, Professor, how do you make a cheddar sandwich on the moon? With a cheese crater! Sam, you've excelled yourself. That's terrible. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you've got a science question that you would like answered next time, leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you can hear loads of brilliant podcasts that we do. Uh, You've heard some today. We've got loads more. We've got stuff about science. We've got stuff about history. We've got stuff about books. You can find them on Apple, Google, Spotify, on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio and over at funkidslive.com. 